God, you know I've always tried to do my best with things, my job, my marriage, my family. But sometimes I get so worried about how I've done with the kids. They're at that age when I can't be with them all the time, and I just have to trust them. There are times when I'm sure they know right from wrong, and that they'll make good decisions. But other times, I'm afraid one of their bad decisions will lead to another and things will start to spiral out of control. I just don't know if I've done enough as their dad. I guess what I'm saying is, please watch over them as they start to make decisions for themselves. Keep them from getting hurt and help Joyce and I be there for them like they need us to be. You know, I just want them to make good decisions and experience the best things in life. Thanks for listening, Meryl. In case it's your first week to be at New Spring, let me just let you know we're in the middle of something that we're doing. It's 21 days of prayer and journaling, and we've also launched an ancillary website called TalkingToGod.com where every morning there's a brief message about prayer, and then you have an opportunity to add your comments or, or your prayer needs or maybe talk about what God is doing in your life. And we're in week three of that this week, and the title of today's talk is Ask Big. Ask Big. When you pray, ask big. Many people have told me through the years, you know, I don't want to bother God with, with this too much stuff. You know, I don't want to bother God. There's a big world, 7 billion people on the planet, and God has to listen to all of us. So I don't want to be too much trouble to God. So I don't really ask for very much. I think we're going to learn today that there's a problem with that. Not only a problem with that, we're, we're much more in line to upset God if we ask small than if we ask big. So today I want to talk about asking big. And then maybe it's a good time for me to just throw out this question for us to consider. You don't need to respond to me in any kind of tangible way, but... How many of us need something big from God today? And some of you know right now you need something big, and you know what it is. It's something big, something way beyond what you're able to achieve or accomplish on your own, or maybe way beyond your resources. How many of you need something big? Some of us need something big and don't know it yet, because something will come up in our lives in the next few days, months, maybe this next year, that will, will challenge us to the breaking point. And we need something big, but we don't even know it yet. And then this is the one that that really gets to me. How many of us are so accustomed to living with small dreams and small ideas because we've not really invited God into our lives that we've settled for small stuff? We've, we, we've settled for small ball when God wants us to play great ball. And how many of us need something great from God and we, we don't know it yet? Well, just let that mull, mull that over in your mind for a few moments because I want to talk about when you need something really, really big from God. And I've been there many, many times in my years, and i got to tell you what I've experienced. It can be the best and the worst of feelings. It's the best of feelings because you begin to imagine, what would happen if God answered my prayer? What, what, what would happen if God showed up and did something remarkable in my life that was beyond my explanation, beyond anybody else's ability to understand or comprehend? And so we, it's a wonderful feeling because you start imagining what if. But on the other hand, I can tell you from, from being there many times, it's a little bit of a terrifying feeling because you think if God doesn't show up, I'm dead. I'm not just dead. I'm so dead. So when you need something really big from God, it's the best of feelings and it's the worst of feelings. I'm just going to be personal with you for a few moments, and this may not be your experience, but it's certainly mine. When I need something huge from God, 
I'm nagged by a little bit of an insecurity that develops in my life. And, and the reason why that insecurity develops is I look at my life and I think, how can a person like me ask God for big things? Maybe big people, you know, maybe big Christians, maybe Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, maybe great prayer warriors of the past like Andrew Murray and, you know, Catherine Booth and George Mueller, maybe, maybe great people whose prayers changed the world. Maybe they have a right to ask for something big from God, but somebody like me who is up one day and down the next, how can a person like me ask God for something big? And that's what I'm like. Uh, some days, to be honest with you, I feel like charging hell with a squirt gun. Other days, I feel like throwing in the towel. That's just my personality. Well, thankfully, for any of us who have that insecurity about asking God for something big because our lives might not be what they should be or because we don't have this extraordinary dynamic faith, thankfully, there's a verse in the Bible that speaks to us. And guys, let me just tell you something. I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture verses in today's talk because if you're going to ask big, your faith is going to have to develop. Your faith does not develop based on the words of Mark. I, I, a lot of you drive halfway across the state of Kansas to be at New Spring on a weekend. I'm very cognizant of the fact that you don't come to hear me. You come to hear a word from God. And here's the thing. If your faith is going to grow, it's going to be because you, you hear the word of God and put your confidence in the promises of God. Because of that today, I'm going to give you a whole lot of Scripture. And this is a verse that brings me a lot of assurance when I have that nagging insecurity about I'm not what I should be, but I'm asking God for something big. It's found in the book of James, which is toward the end of your Bible in the New Testament. But as James is writing, he's going to be writing about a guy who lived a long time ago in the Old Covenant. Let's read. James said, Elijah was just as human as we are, and for three and a half years his prayers kept rain from falling, but when he did pray for rain, it fell from the skies and made the crops grow. We'll set that aside for a moment. I want to go back to the first line. Elijah was just as human as we are. Some of us grew up with a translation that said Elijah was a man subject to like passions. In other words, he had feelings like us. Here is a pure translation of that first line of, of James 5.17. He was a man with human frailties like our own. A man with human frailties like our own. And yet when he prayed, dramatic things happened. Well, what kind of human frailties did Elijah have? Let me take you back to the time of Elijah in the Old Testament. I want to take you to an experience in Elijah's life in which Elijah is coming to the place where he's ready to quit. He is ready to give up on life, give up on God and everything else. This is in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. Just read the language with me. Then he went on alone, this is Elijah, into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. God, just kill me. Just shoot me. I've had enough, Lord, he said. And so the, the, and then he just keeps on with it. First Kings 19. Then he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, I've assigned you to be my prophet, but here you are in the cave wanting to die. What are you doing here? Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. In other words, I don't know if you've ever felt like this or not, but Elijah's saying, God, I've done my part. Where are you? I've been doing my part. I'm, I've worked hard for you. <laughs> but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, thrown down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. God will later tell him there's 7,000 more. But at that moment, Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I quit. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I meet Elijah when I get to heaven, I'm going to shake his hand, but I'm going to feel like I know him already. I am so much like that. There are no pastels in Elijah's personality. When he's high, nobody's higher. When he's low, nobody's lower. And I'm that way. My faith is great one day. My faith is weak the next day. One day I feel like I'm really following God. The next day I feel like I'm not even sure where I am with God. It is good for me to know that a person like me with frailties of being up and down prayed for big stuff and God answered his prayer. I mean, here's the deal. All you got to do is just run the video back 24 hours. And you can see how Elijah had asked God for huge things. For instance, and this is more than you want to know perhaps, but just to give you a little context, Elijah was sent as a prophet to Israel. It was not a good time. Israel was all messed up. I did a series called Freaking Messed Up. That is where Israel was at that point. They truly were messed up. They had the worst king in their history, a guy by the name of Ahab. He was bad enough, but he married a woman who was worse than he was, whose name was Jezebel. And Israel was messed up over who to worship. They still kind of clung to their worship of Jehovah God, but then they also worshiped Baal. And I don't know if when you ever read the Bible, if you ever wonder, you know, why did God's people get into so much trouble worshiping idols? Well, those idols represented, they represented behavior. And basically, just to make it real, real frank, the worship of Baal was orgies. I mean, you can understand why they were popular. You know, I mean, they, they, they would, like, go to worship God on the weekend and worship Jehovah God, but then the rest of the week they would get into Jezebel's bell cult, sex cult, orgy party and call it worship. And they were, they were caught in between. And Elijah was God's prophet. And, and basically, you know, God was saying to Elijah, until they see the light, turn up the heat. So Elijah, realizing and by the way, oh gosh, I don't have time to talk about this right now, but you know, we live in a culture today where the idea is, let's just be nice to everybody. Sometimes we confuse nice with good because sometimes to be good, you have to draw hard lines. And, and, and you know, you may not think that what Elijah did was nice, but God thought it was good. Elijah said, if the people are not going to see the light, God, would you just shut off the rain until they get it? Last year was one of the hottest summers I've ever seen, at least since 1980. And here in Kansas, you know, a lot of lawns got parched with the 100-degree days. But imagine what it would be like if there was a more arid climate and you go for 42 months with no rain. Because, and here's the thing, you just see the stubbornness of these people. They were like, oh, yeah, we're worshiping God, but, yo, we're going to the sex party, too. And, 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 and no rain, and, you know, one year passes, and they refuse to change. And two years pass, and they refuse to change. Still stubborn. And now this was about 24 hours before Elijah hit rock bottom that we read about a few moments ago. Elijah said, we need to resolve this thing. There were 850 leaders on the payroll of Jezebel, who were part of the Baal sex cult worship. They were prophets and priests of Baal. Basically, they were just sex perverts. But in any event, Elijah said to them, Let, let's, have a, let's have a contest. And back in those days, whenever there was an oblation or a worship 
service done, there was a sacrifice. And, and that happened in the Baal worship, and it happened in Jehovah worship. And in Baal worship, they, they worshiped the bull. So Elijah said, let's, let's have a sacrifice. Let's go up on top of Mount Carmel, which overlooks the sea. Let, let's set up an altar. And he said, here's the thing, and, and let me just give you this before we go forward. They would put the bullock on the altar, and then they would ignite it, and it would burn as a sacrifice. And Elijah said, let's, 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 here's the test. Let's build the altar, put the bull on top of the altar, but not ignite it. And ask our gods to start the fire. And whichever God starts the fire, that's the real God, and we'll worship him. Because Elijah said, look, if Jehovah's God, we need to worship him. If Baal's God, Elijah said, I'll be the first to say we need to worship him. And so the Baal people said, well, that sounds like a good plan. So Elijah said, well, there are 850 of you and one of me, so you guys, you, you lead off. So they set up the altar, and, and they started praying, and, and they prayed louder and louder. And, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but God let Elijah get by with it. Elijah starts trash-talking. And he's, <laughs> that's terrible. Elijah says, you guys are not crying loud enough. Your God is deaf. He can't hear you. Turn it up. And they did, you know. And Elijah said, you guys are not serious. And they started cutting themselves. All morning long, into the afternoon, they were praying, oh, Baal, send fire. Elijah was over there, any news? <laughs> I love this guy. Well, about middle of the afternoon, Elijah rebuilt the altar, put the bullock, you know, set the bullock on the altar. Talk about dramatic personality. Elijah said, hey, before I pray and ask God to send down fire, Pour 12 barrels of water on the bull. Now listen, if I'm hoping for spontaneous combustion, I don't pour 12 barrels of water. So Elijah said, pour 12 barrels of water. And he prayed a prayer that's about 58 words in English. He didn't pray in English, but I'm saying in English it's about 58 words. And basically he just said, God, show who you are. Fire came, licked up the sacrifice. The people said, the Lord is God. We will worship God. And Elijah said, well, if you're going to worship if you're going to worship Jehovah, you don't need 850 prophets and priests to Baal, do you? And so they dealt with them. That will come back to haunt Elijah because they work for Jezebel. But in the meantime, the people have said, Jehovah is God, we will worship him. And so Elijah said, well, now it's time to pray for rain. In fact, before there was any rain, well, it was still arid and the ground was cracked in parts. After this happens, Elijah says to King Ahab in chapter 18, verse 41, you better go get something to eat and drink for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Did he really hear it? Elijah sat down on top of the mountain and began to pray, and he put his head between his knees, and he sent his servant out and said, do you see any clouds coming up? And the servant said, no, I don't see anything, sir. In fact, let's read it. Chapter 18, verse 43. Then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked, and then he returned to Elijah and said, I don't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. Finally, the seventh time his servant told him, I see a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. Verse 45, and soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm. They prayed that God would shut up the heavens. No rain. He prayed that God would cause fire to call, come from heaven, lick up the sacrifice. It fell. He prayed for God to turn on the water again. God turned on the water again. Those are huge requests. But then, as I shared with you a moment ago, the word got to Jezebel that Elijah whacked her 850 prophets, and she said to him, or sent, the, sent a text to him and said, you're going to be dead tomorrow. 
And Elijah starts running for his life, goes to the cave, asks God to let him die. Now, here's my question for you. Here's the question. For all of us who feel insecure about asking God for big things, God knows everything. Did, when, when Elijah was praying for God to shut up the heavens, when Elijah was praying for fire to fall, when Elijah was praying for God to start the water back again, did God know in 24 hours his servant was going to be whining in a cave, blaming God for everything, asking God to let him die? Absolutely. God knew he was dealing with a flawed person. In fact, the Bible says Elijah was just as human as we are, and yet when he prayed, who needs something big from God today? You say, and I, you know, I, can, I can hear someone, well, I don't know about this fire falling from the sky business. Well, you don't need fire to fall from the sky. That's not what you need. Elijah needed that. You need something else. What do, you, what do you need from God today? If you're here and you need something big or you, you're wise enough to know that you will need something big, well, let me give you real quickly five things that you need to know about asking big. And I'm not into lists, but it, this might be a good day to take it down or this will be on the Internet so you can check it later. The five things that you need to know. Here's the first one. It's really big. The size of your prayers depends on the size of your God. If you have a small God, you'll ask for small things. If you have a medium-sized God, you'll ask for medium-sized things. If you have a big God, you're asking for big things. The size of your prayers depends on the size of your God. Notice I didn't say the size of your prayers depends on the size of your need. Nor does it depend on how, listen, you ready for this? It does not depend on how good you've been. Every once in a while, people will say to me, Mark, I, I would ask for this, but I haven't lived a very good life. Now, if we really extrapolate that out, and if we, if we take that to its extreme, we'll find out really that thought's a very diabolical thought because what we would really be saying is if I had been better, I would deserve for God to do this. And God never reacts to anything like that except negatively. God is a God of mercy, is a God of grace. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. So this is not a matter of how good we've been or even the size of our need. God wants his power to be respected. See, this is what I'm saying. Sometimes we think we're asking God for too much and we're really asking God for too little. Or sometimes we think we're asking God for things that are too big when really we're asking for things that are too small. God is a sovereign God. He's a powerful God. He wants his power to be respected by our prayers. There's a story, and again, I'm not going to give you the whole story, but there was a king in Israel whose name, excuse me, in Judah whose name was Ahaz. And he wasn't a great king necessarily, but he prayed and asked God for something, and God said he'd do it, and so Ahaz wanted to sign, and that's where we pick up the discussion. Later, the Lord, and I had this in red in my notes, because the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. This is God's lips to Ahaz's ears. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as the heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Now, that sounds very sanctimonious, doesn't it? I mean, we just want to, don't we, don't we want to give Ahaz a hug at that moment? You know, you sort of expect Isaiah to say, oh, man, you know, you're a good guy, Ahaz. And God is saying, ask for something big. And Ahaz said, no, 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 sacrony, wimpy, I don't want to trouble God. 
Isaiah is his pastor. Isaiah said, isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? In other words, Isaiah said, look, you're, you're, you're driving me crazy. I'm your pastor. I'm human. I'm like you. You're driving me crazy. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then. The Lord himself will give you the sign. Isaiah said, God will just take this matter into his own hands. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah said, all right, if you won't ask for something big, then God will just take this into his own hands, and he will give you a sign that is worthy of his size. How about him having a virgin have a baby, which 743 years later, it did happen, and the person's name was Jesus. God said, let me show you what a person, a God like me, can do. God wants his power to be respected. Some of us are not respecting God's power when we pray because we're playing small ball. We're asking for small things. This is, these, these next two thoughts are going to take a little imagination, but work with me. Suppose you you know, throwing a party at your house, and Gerhard Richter shows up. And you say, who is that? Well, you need to know he's the, worst, he's the world's most expensive living artist. Most of the time, artists' works become expensive after they die. But Gerhard Richter, one of his paintings sold the other day for $16.5 million. And the dude is still living. So you have a party, and Gerhard Richter, the great artist, the world's most expensive living artist, shows up at your house, and he says to you, like, like we saw in week one, you know, where God is saying, what would you like for me to do for you? And, and Gerhard Richter says, is there anything I can do for you? And you say, yeah, over here, I've got a little scuff on my wall, and, and I was thinking maybe you could take a little builder's white and fill it in. The only reason I know this name is I'm a good husband. And years and years and years of watching ESPN have caused me to have to pay a kind of penance, which means I watch the Food Channel with Mary Alice sometimes. <laughs> and because of that, I know the name Ina Garten. Ina is my wife's favorite chef. My wife TiVo's her program. I have watched Ina make a lot of things. Now, she's a very gifted culinary artist. Now you're having a big party, and lots of people over the house. You got dinner, and you, you know you you got you, you, everything. You're up to your up to your ears, and stuff to be done, dishes to be cooked, and all of a sudden you look, and Ina Garten walks into your house, and says, "Hey, can I help?" And you say, "Yeah, would, would you put the ice in the glasses?" See, some of us are doing something worse with God. God shows up. I mean, we heard the words of Jesus in week one. What would you like for me to do for you? Will you touch up the wall? Will you put some ice in the glasses? I mean, God wants his power to be respected. How big is your God? And you'll know by the things you're asking him. In fact, when you come to God, God says this in Hebrews eleven six, 6, which is maybe the greatest verse in the Bible on faith. It says it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe two things. Number one, that God exists. Number two, that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Let me put that in modern English for you. If you pray and ask God for something, number one, you need to be convinced that he's real and that he exists. And number two, here's a big one. You need to believe when you pray God wants to do good things for you. That's number one. Number two, with God... The question is never, can he? The question is, will he? When Jesus was on the earth, there was a man who had a son who was in real trouble. And I don't know exactly what was wrong with this boy, but he had a condition or something going wrong inside of him in which he would 
do inexplicably strange, self-destructive things. And the daddy was, he was very concerned about his boy. And he brought him to Jesus' disciples, and Jesus' disciples couldn't help him. You know, a lot of people, and boy, this is another to- topic for another day, but there are a lot of people who have been in churches where they didn't get any help, and because they didn't get any help in that church, they thought God couldn't give them any help. In some cases, they've just been to a powerless church. And so, um, the dad came to Jesus, and here's what he said. If you can do anything, Mark 9, 22, if you can do anything, if you can do anything. How many of us pray like that? God, my marriage is going down the toilet, but if you can do anything with that husband of mine. God, this is a terrible economy. I don't know if nobody's getting a job, but if you can do anything. See, the question is not can he. I mean, this guy said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said, I mean, that's not the question. The question is not if I can do anything. The question is if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And then he gives us one of the greatest statements in the Bible. This man does. In verse 24, immediately the father of this child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. How many of us could line up behind this dad? Lord, I believe. I'm just struggling here. That leads me to number three. And I'm going to give credit where it's due. Mark Batterson in his awesome book, The Circle Maker, says this, and this is a line that I'm coming to really embrace. To the infinite, all finites are equal. Now, this is going to be ground zero of today's message, so really get this. The problem that we have with asking God for things is we transfer our own feelings about being asked for things. For instance, if you ask me for something, I can't help myself. I'm finite. I have finite resources. I have finite time. I have, I'm limited. Everything, I have limitations on all my resources other than my relationship with God. Now, if you come and you ask me for something, instantly I'm going to measure it. How much is it going to cost me? How much time am I going to have to invest? If you ask me for something that's beyond my capabilities, I'm thinking, how far can I go before I hit the wall? I cannot help myself, and you cannot help yourself. See, we think about this in relationship to asking God for things. We think things are small requests, medium-sized requests, big requests. That's how we measure what we ask God for. But what we must realize is God is not finite. He is eternal. He has no limit to his resources. He has no limit to his power. So to the infinite All finites are equal. I want to give you some scripture here just so that you'll know this. This is a story from Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 9. I need to give you a little background here. Jesus' chief enemies were the most religious people of his day, and they were always trying to trap him. And in their minds, as long as he was like healing people, even though that was a miracle, that was okay. But anything he did that sort of led to an assertion that he was God really freaked him out. So let me read this to you, and you'll see what I'm, what I'm talking about when we get through. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, That's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Now look at verse 5. I love this. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? In other words, Jesus said, you want to take a crack at either one of these? 
You want to take a crack at asking this paralyzed man to get up and walk, or do you want to forgive his sins? Basically, Jesus was saying, you can't do either one. Verse 6, so I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. And Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. Basically, Jesus said, look, I'm infinite. It's equal for me to either say, stand up and walk, or to forgive you of your sins. In Genesis chapter 18, you have the story of elderly Sarah who was promised she could have a baby and laughed about it, and God said, is anything too hard for the Lord? If you were here last week, I told you the story how that the Israelites were complaining about not having meat in the wilderness, and I want to just sort of pick that up right now because the Israelites have said to Moses, you know, we're just sick and tired of this manna, and we don't have any meat, and God got upset with them, and God said to Moses, look, I'm going to give them meat, but not for a day or for weeks. I'm going to give them meat for a month. God said, I'm going to make them sick. They're going to get sick of it. Now, Moses, <laughs> they're out in the desert, three and a half million people. There are no McDonald's. There are no Burger Kings or anything else out there. And Moses is saying to God, I don't see how you're going to do that. Let's just read this. Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? In other words, see, Moses is asking God the way we ask God. Moses is saying, God, that's too big for you. I can't figure it out. And God said to Moses, I didn't hire you to figure it out. I just want you to do what I called you to do. Let me figure my stuff out. And my favorite verse on this is in the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah prophesied at a time when Israel looked like one of those futuristic movies where everything is a wasteland and J Jerusalem is empty. It's a ghost town. And God said to Zechariah, you know, there's coming a time when I'm going to rebuild all this and children are going to play in the streets. And listen to what God said to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me? And God is saying, look, I'm going to pull this off. But it's going to, you guys are going to think, wow, this is awesome. It's such a God thing. God said, I'm not even going to break a sweat. See, to the infinite, all finite things are equal. Whether you're asking God to work in your marriage or you're asking God to help you find a parking place, to the infinite, all things Find out or equal. Well, I've got two more points in six minutes. Let's go. Number four, when you're asking God for something big, you have to be careful, number four, because we can lose faith in the big dream God has given us and settle for the tiny one that we can make happen on our own. Sometimes we think, wow, this is too big to ask God for. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to ask God for something that big, so I'm just going to back off, and I'm going to do what I can make happen. You know, this month is 27 years for me at New Spring, and there's so much history that is long gone. But I want to tell you a story. We used to be located... Oh, just a little south of Via Christi St. Joseph. We were on four and a half acres of land and about 400 people. And I remember I was conducting a funeral service. I think this was 1991. I was conducting a funeral service at Lakeview Funeral Home, just south here. 
And I used to joke about that back then because I, I always said to my staff, if I do a funeral at Lakeview, I always take my lunch because all you could do to get to Lakeview is get on 13th Street and drive forever. But I was crossing the bridge just south here on 13th Street, and I looked down and I saw a pipe lying on the ground. And I asked a friend, what's happening out there on 13th Street out by Lakeview Funeral Home? And he said, oh, there's going to be a new expressway that's going to belt the northeast quadrant of the city. I knew that fast. I mean, it was instant. That's our future. That's where we're going to be. But I also knew it was extremely unpopular to think of moving. I mean, our church had been very settled. We had all our bills paid. We had, we had tons of money in the bank. I mean, the last time they had built a building I'd been in, in school in Texas as a kid, and there was a reluctance to even build too much, but relocating 12 miles, there was no way in the world. There was only a handful of people I could even talk to about it. And so I had this brilliant idea. Instead of asking God for something big, I would do what we could do. I would back off and I would settle for something tiny. And I, I knew one thing I could convince everybody of is, well, at least let's build a building that will allow for the growth that we're beginning to experience. Because by this point, we're up to like 500. And, 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 and I said, let's, let's just build a building here. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, we'll build this building. It will allow for some growth. And when we do grow, then that will be, that will be the strength and the impetus for us eventually to fulfill the dream that God had given me. And so we did, or at least we laid plans for it. We engaged an architect. We had so many meetings. I can't tell you how many meetings I sat in on and said, okay, we'll build this building. We decided we'd build a three-story building. Crazy idea. People already parking in northern Oklahoma. We're going to take up a third of our parking space with a big building out in the middle of the parking lot. But one level was going to be below ground, two levels above ground. But by this time, it's, 19, it's 1994. And uh, we're really ready to start construction. Dan Kubish would remember this, our kids' pastor. He wasn't on our staff then at that time, but he went with me to Fairfax, Virginia, in the shadow of Washington, D.C., where I was speaking for a church there. And then my son, Jonathan, who was 13 at the time. And at the end of that meeting on a Sunday night, through a series of just God things, the Holy Spirit, I started to say, grabbed me by the shoulders, but it was almost like he put his hands around my throat and said, if you build this building, are you listening to me? If you build this building, you'll be there forever, and your dream will never come true. And Jonathan Markle, remember this, we went back to the Hampton Hotel where I was staying, and I, got, I said, son, I don't know how to stop this. We've gone too far. We've already engaged the architect. Everybody's sold on the idea. I don't know how to stop this. In fact, I, I knelt down, and Jonathan prayed, and I prayed, and I said, oh, God, I'm terrified. We're about to do the wrong thing, but the train has left the station, and I don't know how to stop this. Flew home, and I remember it was the week after, two weeks after Stephen was born. Mary Alice picked me up at Mid-Continent, and I said the words that she always hates to hear me say when I come back from a speaking trip. I said, would you take me to my office? I just want to get my mail. We drove up to the parking lot and came to the front door. And when we drove up, our architect was standing at the door with the saddest face I've ever seen. His chin was like reached all the way to the ground. And he saw me coming. 
And he said, Pastor, we have a problem. He said, you know, when I started drawing plans, I should have done bore samplings, but I just assumed that we were okay. And he said, we got water at 12 feet. And he said, we're not going to be able to build this building. And I said, it's not a problem. And he looked at me like I needed analysis. But, you know, I just prayed the night before. And thankfully, thankfully, with thousands of people who meet here on a weekend now, thankfully, God rescued me from the stupidity of playing small ball when God wanted me to do great things. Listen, guys, when God has put something, a big dream on your heart, and I'm not talking about the kind of stuff, you know, pie in the sky and someday my ship will come in and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when God puts a dream on your heart, which will always bring him glory and always help people. When God puts that kind of dream in your heart, don't play small ball. Don't back up and settle for something that you can do when you could trust God to do the impossible. I have one minute left. Number five, do I have the courage for God to move in uncontrollable and unpredictable ways? Guys, I could keep you here for the next 24 hours telling you about impossible things that God has done in this guy's life. And you know I'm flawed, and you know I'm, I've told you my faith can be weak at times, and yet I can tell you so many things that God did. But there's a consistency factor in big things. Small things don't necessarily work this way, but big things, there's a consistent, there's a, there's a 100% factor with big things. God never works the way I expect him to. When I ask for something big, I can count on it. I mean, I always suggest to God how he should do it. I have a plan. And the problem is, and I don't know if I have any other soul sisters or soul brothers here, the problem is that I tend to interpret circumstances along the trail in line with my ideas about how God should do things. And, and I'm always screwing up because I'll think something's positive when it turns out to be negative, and I'll think something's catastrophic when it turns, to be the, turns out to be the very vehicle that God uses. Every once in a while, God, I think, just delights to remind me that while I'm playing checkers, he's playing 3D chess. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways in my thoughts than your thoughts. And here's the thing. When you ask big, is it okay with you if God does it his way? I got to tell you this real fast. I need, I need time to back up. Um, there have been two seasons in my life of intense prayer. That's between me and God, where I was praying for blessing daily and hourly. And I got to tell you that at the end of those seasons, I went through the two darkest times of my life. And I had a hard time figuring that out until I look back and I realize that those hard times produced some of the greatest moments of my life and impacted so many other people. Is it okay with you if God works in unusual ways? A few moments ago, I talked to you about a fire in a garden showed up at your house and you had a big dinner to pull off. You know what the smart thing to do would be? If Ina walked in and said, hey, can I help? Smart thing to do would be to say, Ina, would you just mind taking over, please? (laughs) And you know what? She wouldn't do it your way. And her recipes wouldn't be your recipes. But for years to come, you would tell everybody about the day that Ina Garten showed up at your house and did things her way. And it's, it's the same way with God. 
When God comes in and you say, God, would you just take over? Uh, he won't do things your way, and he won't use your recipes, but you'll be telling your kids and your grandkids about the day that God came by and took over in your life and did things that nobody else can explain. Ask big.